Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute for their human performance program and creator of the Flex Diet Cert, which you can pick up right now if you're listening to this right away and a bunch of other stuff. I'm Michelle Bourne. I'm a strength conditioning coach at Northeastern University, which is in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and I'm also the owner of Michelle Bowen Training. Awesome. Yeah, I was in Boston uh, in May, late May, early June for a, a Babson. It was an entrepreneurial workshop up there, uh, and I had never been. So that was my first experience with your nice. Well, yeah. First of all, you said Boston really good. You <laughs> had the access, accent in it, so I like that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right, everybody. Uh, we have two listener mails. We have one little bit of news, and we're going to truncate it there because we want to get to uh, our guest. So having said that, this first one I think is most geared toward you, uh, Miguel, because it's about specific brands of probiotics. This is from Jared. He says, hello. First, love the show. I've been listening for a while, and I've implemented a ton of things uh, that I've learned into my training. Uh, I love to listen to Phil talk about how he does things. And then he says, quote, eat like an asshole. It's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> my God. <laughs> anyway, um, I've heard you mention the importance of gut health and the use of probiotics uh, from both food sources and supplements over the past year. Um, I've tried a few out. My question is, uh, I was wondering if you have a particular brand that you recommend uh, at least checking out in regards to the supplement side of things. There's so much information regarding um, genus, species, strains, and CFUs that I'm finding myself having a hard time picking a good quality brand I can trust. I don't use supplements very often other than protein, so I don't really have a go-to company. Any help would be great. Thanks again, Jared. Okay, Dr. Yeah. Andy. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of good companies um, out there. I mean, I guess it depends on what type of probiotic you're looking for. So how I think of them is I kind of divide them into three categories, and I blatantly stole this from Dr. Michael Ruscio. He was been on here before, so you can go back and listen to that episode. Um, but I think of the standard ones as sort of your uh, lactobacillus ones, which for that, if you're going to go with something that is probably higher quality and a higher strain count and higher number. Uh, I do like the the VSL for that. Uh, you can, when you get it, make sure you get it that it's actually refrigerated most of the time because uh, that one does have to be uh, kept cool. And the other two categories, I like a more of a soil or a spore-based probiotic. Uh, for that one, I use something from a company called Megaspore, of a cheesy name, but it's a pretty good product. The nice thing about that is that you don't need as much in terms of uh, sheer numbers. You can keep it outside of the fridge. It's stable at room temperature. 
So if I'm traveling a lot and I'm using a probiotic, uh, that's the one I'll probably use the most often lately. And then the other category is something called uh, Saccharomyces biardii. And that one is pretty inexpensive. From what I've seen, most of the quality is relatively good because it's not super expensive. Um, I'll typically use like the Jaro brand for that, J-A-R-R-O-W. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the three categories I would uh, put them in. And I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. Do you have any gut issues? Uh, things of that nature. Um, I do like the Megaspore one. I've been using that probably the most lately, just a couple capsules every once in a while. And it seems to help. I may take it a little bit more when I, when I travel, but I don't really have any other gut issues I'm trying to work around either. Yeah, makes sense. No, I appreciate the specific brands. I mean, I'm just not... You know, I don't take one specifically. I just try to eat a variety of, you know, fibrous fruits and vegetables and things like that. Um, I was at a actually a workshop this past week called Farm to Table. I was reconnecting with some of the other dietitians in the area. Oh, nice. And, you know, there's always talk about kombucha and some of these things. And there's mm-hmm. actually a local guy who calls himself Bucha Bob. And but I was <laughs> I was looking at his website about how it's made, and it's grossing me out. I think I'd rather just go with a supplement pill. <laughs> to be honest. Oh yeah. Dude. You probably don't want to see actual raw kombucha because it looks like something out of a swamp. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't know. It didn't look appealing to me um, anyway. But um, no, it's a good question, right? So, yeah. Okay, our next one. Uh, maybe we can get some uh, input from everybody here, in- including Coach Boland. Um, this is from Ben. He says, "Hey guys, I've never been able to overhead press 135. Uh, I'm turning 39 this month." Uh, I've been using the deadlift, overhead press, bench, and smaller movements to keep me healthy over the last seven years uh, of competing in BJJ. Is that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I'm going to guess. Yep. Um, Love how little lifting uh, one has to actually do to feel and look great when using basic compound lifts. I've emailed you guys before. You're actually instrumental in starting me on my competition path. Uh, Love barbells and basic effective lifts. At any rate, in my professional life recently, I've made a real push towards always having concrete goals and actionable paths. Uh, To that end, I thought I'd focus hard and put aside the deadlift and bench for a while just to focus on the OHP. Uh, Using Wendler 531, which has always been great for me, I've decided to put 135 over my head with strict pressing by my 40th birthday, meaning uh, I've got one year to get it done. Right now, I can do 115 for three reps. Mm. Uh, he says, no one will care but me, but I'm happy knowing I got two wheels over my head. Um, so what are your tips? Accessory movements that will help my overhead press, etc. Thanks. Your f- podcast is fantastic. Ben. Now, before you guys, because I know you're going to say, well, how big is he? Some of these other things. He actually sent some <laughs> like anthropometrics here. Um, nice. he, he's a lean 158 pounds. He's 5'11". Um, I will have three weight cuts during this next year, and of course he's he's you know perceiving that's going to affect his his uh, training on some level. Uh, but I never walk around more than five pounds over my competitive weight, and he has some other details here. So five eleven, one fifty eight. He really wants to punch one thirty five over his head. Uh, let's start with our guest. I know this is just on the fly, Coach, but what do you what do you have for uh, Ben as far as tips? I feel like Mike Nelson would be able to get this question right away, but um, 
I don't know, weight moves weight. So, you know, if he's floating around at a certain weight, like maybe try to gain a little bit of weight. And if he wants to get better overhead pressing, overhead press. So um, that's my like short answer right there. Let's see if Mike has anything. Yeah, I mean, I would agree in general with that. Um, Usually my thought process of how I break that down is, can he get 135 over his head safely in kind of sort of any manner? You know, maybe that's a push press or a jerk or right. anything like that. And then can he get into a stable overhead position and just hold there for an isometric without looking like he's trying to do a backbend competition? Because mm-hmm. my, my guess, which what I see a fair amount, is especially if I don't know what job he has, if it's a day job or in front of a computer... Uh, if he's doing a lot of BJJ, that tends to be a very flexion-orientated sport. So you're kind of curled more forward. And I find that a lot of times just getting the arm overhead with a semi-neutral low back and rib cage is pretty hard. So if that's true, he's kind of starting at a little bit of a disadvantage. And I know that was my issue for the longest time, but I went back and had to fix a bunch of stuff with that. I did a lot of PRI and some other stuff that helped. Um so that's what I would look at with that just from a plain mobility standpoint. And if that's good, then you know, slowly adding more strength to that will be beneficial. For accessory lifts, like probably the couple that I like are, you know, any type of you know rowing is gonna be beneficial. Um, I don't know if he needs to give up deadlifting per se. I don't really think that's gonna conflict all that much. Um, the other ones I like is uh, plate press. So a lot of times people will compensate with trying to be super heavy on their grip with almost a little too much irradiation. So take a plate, almost like a pizza press, and lay it flat on your hand and then try to push it overhead as an accessory lift. So what you're doing is you're getting the wrist kind of back in a different position. You're doing it with an open palm. So the accessory lift, I like that. Another accessory lift I like is to sit down on the ground, have both feet flat out with your uh, hamstrings touching the ground at like 45 degrees, Take a light dumbbell or kettlebell in one arm and then press it overhead. So what they have to do with that is that they can't become very hyper extended by doing that because they'll just tip over backwards. Um, and that teaches them the opposite side for more stabilization to work really well. So if it's a stabilization issue, that's a really good uh, accessory lift that he could do also. Sounds like, like a plan. I don't I don't deal with a lot of overhead like sports, but my first like mentality would be like going back to how Mike was referencing like position. It's like have you even earned the right to put things over your head? And I think that like when people get limited by overhead pressing, um, there's some sort of limitation to them being actually able to like be able to move their rib cage down and allow like their scaps to move on their rib cage to be actually able to get an overhead position. So my first question, if there's some sort of like he's getting a limitation in the weight being lifted, it's can you actually like complete that movement and are you like using a neck to be able to do that or are you actually able to use the right muscles in move without limitation to be able to put that weight over your head right yeah um i'm gonna agree with a lot of like the upper back kinds of work uh i like what you said michelle right out of the gate is 
just specificity, right? I mean, yeah. when I do this, um, yeah. I, I'm not that strong with this kind of stuff, you guys. I mean, I, I, I routinely, like, even sometimes if I'm, like, warming up with, with squats or something like that, between sets, I'll just grab, you know, the 135, and I'll just back out of the, out of the you know, the power rack with it and just punch it over my head five or six times, you know? Um, but to Mike's point about, um, put like push press and things like that, uh, I'm not sure that I understand completely if he's just after the performance lift or like some kind of dominating, controlled, all muscular activity kind of thing, right? Because that's, mm-hmm. that's how I overhead press. I'm not going to put any bounce into it. I just, you know, just literally grind it up and down. Um, almost straight on my upper back and deltoids kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I could see some triceps accessory work and that sort of thing, but uh, I just keep it real specific. I just like to be able to know that I can put 135 or 185 over <laughs> my head, just freestanding in the middle of a, of a floor. Uh, and that makes me feel like I've I've got some kind of minimal function, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just... I just like to grab the barbell and but but good points from you guys like have you earned that like is there something in this chain of um joints and muscles that are clearly going to make you you know bend way back or have to do something really bizarre to get that over your head you know so maybe having somebody watch you as well you know from the side or the front that's a tip I got it from you Mike actually is when you film yeah. people <clears throat> You know, yeah. you can't just look just obliquely or just from the front. You really need to have someone kind of looking and be like, this looks off to me. You know, some experienced coach who can kind of look at the form, I guess. Yeah. One other quick tip that <clears throat> will work virtually is that if holding the lockout position, in my what I've seen, is very hard, his alignment is probably off. So if he's really extended or he can't get basically his entire skeleton lined up directly vertical under that bar it's going to be pretty hard to hold even a lighter weight at lockout if you get everything lined up you're transmitting more of that load right through your skeleton into the ground and holding that lockout should be pretty easy and i'll even have people belly breathe in that position to make sure they really own the final position yeah if you can do that then that's a pretty good indicator you know obviously having a coach or someone watch you is going to be better um, but it's a good indicator that you're probably on the the right path. I like that a lot. Like dominate the lockout, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, sometimes I'll, when I do it, and again, I'm no expert at this, but I'll do just what you just said. I'll just I'll I'll have it in the lockout position. I'll just stand there and just make sure that I am freaking dominating that. Right. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Um, on the end position. I wish we had Phil here. I'm sure he'd have some gold nuggets. Maybe we'll check in oh, with yeah. him next week, uh, Ben. But yeah, thanks for that. That's that's a that's a good question. Good question. Yeah, it's one of the most basic lifts. We talk so much about bench, squat, deadlift, and I think the overhead press, you know, has its role in, in the it, with, with the big movements. You know, the big kid movements. So, um, okay, I have one bit of news, and then we'll get to um, Coach Boland here. Strength and muscle sport news. Um, this is. A gender-related study from the journal Antioxidants. It's a 2017 paper, so it's not brand new. Uh, But before we hit the record button, everybody, I was sort of talking about this. The title is The Effects of Gender and Menstrual Phase on Serum Creatine Kinase Activity and Muscle Soreness Following Downhill Running. So they did downhill running to get them sore instead of using negatives, you know, of whatever kind of lift. 
Um, the authors are oh boy, Oosthuis, O O S T H U Y S E, Oosthuis and Bosch, B O S C H. They're South Africans. Um, anyway, here's how it's set up: uh, serum creatine kinase activity reflects muscle membrane disruption. Estrogen has antioxidant and membrane stabilizing properties. Yet no study has compared the, the CK or the muscle soreness response uh, to unaccustomed exercise between genders uh, and across menstrual phase. So there's plenty of stuff out there from you know mm. Priscilla Clarkson's early work and that sort of thing. Um, I think we know right that m- women either get a reduced damage response, microtrauma response, either through soreness or CK, or it recovers more quickly. Um, but as far as like you know, with, with hormone fluctuations over the course of the month, you know, is muscle recovery different at times of the month? So 15 eumenorrheic women, so they were healthy, normal menstrual cycles, and six men. It's kind of an odd mix, but they uh, had 20 minutes of downhill running. So, again, downhill running, I use that in my dissertation. That will wreck you, people. Oh, yeah. uh, so real sore. Anyway, um Serum CK activity was restored to pre-exercise levels quicker in women, regardless of the menstrual phase, than men. And again, I think that's in agreement with earlier stuff. After 48 hours, it says in men it took them 72 hours to get back to baseline. And again, this was after what they do, a 10% uh, downward gradient on the treadmill at 9 kilometers per hour. So that's pretty steep. That's going to be pretty rough. Anyway... Conversely, the women still reported muscle soreness at that 72-hour mark, despite their CK levels being back to normal. And then it goes on to say, let's see, delayed recovery among the women uh, from the muscle soreness perspective appeared mainly in the early follicular and late follicular phases. And then they go on to conclude the DOMS response in women is prolonged uh, and may be influenced by menstrual phase. Hmm. So I think this is an agreement with a lot of earlier stuff that women get a little bit less damage and or recover more quickly. And again, they're, they're connecting that back to estrogen. I guess my quick question uh, for you, Michelle, is do you perceive women athletes being able to recover? Do they get less wrecked or do they recover more quickly? And any indications at all that the time of the month may matter or is that something you don't notice? Um, I think – time of the month absolutely does matter but I think that athletes don't really have a perception of thinking about you know the phase of their menstrual cycle and then how they're feeling like they don't correlate that it's not something that they're very conscious about um I think I try to ask questions as much as possible like you know when you when you have your period like how how do you feel and I always get the answer of oh I I don't know I've never like noticed Um, Mm -hmm. and then also like, I don't know, like the percentage, but extremely high percent of females are on some sort of contraceptive. So they have absolutely no like awareness of, um, kind of how their body's changing or how that's affecting how they're feeling. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big one too. Um, I know myself, I definitely notice I feel completely different um, you know, every week of the month or around my menstrual cycle. And I'm very like conscious about that. And I think you can, you know, change your training, uh, based on that and how like you're fluctuating, but 
I think also when we see like those research studies, one, it's great to see research on females, but when they call like menstrual cycles normal, like what exactly does that mean? Because I think that can be different for, you know, each individual um, subject. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that's extremely difficult to kind of manage when we're looking at females as well. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of, I feel like this is very typical of strength conditioning coaches, but like I don't deal with a lot of like we don't really get. I think it's kind of a stereotype of getting male athlete assignments. I mean, I deal with three teams, my primary teams, and they're all female athlete teams. Um, so I can't really say too much on comparing males to females. Um, but I think being conscious of how people are feeling and what phase of their menstrual cycle they on, I think that's kind of lacking um, with a lot of a lot of athletes. So I think creating awareness for that is is a big component of that. Sounds logical. Uh, Mike, any thoughts about about this? They they actually dig a little deeper in this as well, and I don't want to muddy the waters too much, but they're suggesting that the 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 blood markers like creatine kinase don't uh, really parallel with soreness in women like they do in men. But mm-hmm. but I've looked at I've actually presented and published on this myself. It doesn't it, it correlate that well in men either. To be honest, muscle yeah, damage the markers performance aspect is not that correlative. No, no, right. And so they're suggesting that it does correlate in men and not women. That's the first I've I've heard that. Um, yeah, but any thoughts about you know I, I know last week Phil said something about just because women can handle volume or they can recover a little more quickly. Does that automatically mean we should give them more volume, right? Like, what's the, what's the optimal load, you know, over the course of a training cycle, um, you know, stuff like that? But yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a very interesting study, and as you mentioned, Lonnie, that the hard part, which I would love to see, and maybe they did it, just wasn't mentioned, is uh, follow up at a set period of time with another performance indicator, because as you know, like CK will will definitely go up when you destroy muscle tissue. We do know that it does have an effect on performance, but it's not this nice, neat, linear relationship. I mean, if you massively wreck someone, you massively escalate CK, yeah, your performance will be a little bit less. But if you're anywhere kind of in the middle, it just doesn't map super well. So whenever I see CK studies and mechanistic stuff, in my head I'm always thinking I wish they would follow up with some type of performance indicator and see how it's kind of matching then at that point. Um, I mean, I don't really do much with menstrual cycle with women. I, you know, weight gain, you know, things like that, you know, around that time of month. I usually ask them if they're regular or not. And usually I'll know if they're on uh, birth control or not also. And if something is changing, you know, then we may look at maybe we got too aggressive on lowering their calories or or things of that nature. But um, I did a study on energy drinks uh, years ago as part of my Ph.D., and I had people in there who were males. I had people who were uh, female. And from the literature that I saw at that time, I didn't see any data to show that there was a big enough performance <clears throat> difference that I had to take into account what time of month the women were at. Um, maybe there's a little bit more newer data that says maybe we should change that. But, um, yeah, still an interesting study, especially on the more the, the mechanistic side. Do you, Do you think that there's some sort of, like, neural changes or like hormonal changes that lead to pain perception or pain sensitivity between like genders or based on like uh, their menstrual cycle? My 
My gut feeling in a little bit I've seen is I think you could make an argument that the perception of pain is probably different. Um, it, it just appears in everything I've seen. Women probably have a bigger pain tolerance than men, maybe because they have to give birth. And possibly at different times of, of the month that may change, which you could then argue that if you believe, you know, especially long-term endurance events are more just pain management, uh-huh. maybe that would be an advantage. Um, there was some older Russian literature, which I wasn't able to find again, that, that said that uh, with pregnancy, that I think there was some increases in EPO and some other changes. So one of the rumors was that Russian um, endurance athletes, they would try to get them pregnant at a specific time, uh, deliver, and then have like a big race. I don't remember what it was, like a couple months or something after that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Kind of disturbing. Yeah. Pregnancy doping. I heard yeah, that I know. called once. <laughs> That's so messed up. I think oh, I oh, by far on many levels, ethics aside, just <laughs> right. No, right. Uh, you know, I, I actually, when I did my dissertation, I went out beyond the three days that these guys did. I did five days and I looked at white blood cell counts and performance and a lot of other things, but it's a good point, Michelle, about soreness because I don't usually attach value judgments, you know, to dependent variables, but women are just straight better uh, at pain than men. I think you might say, oh, well, women have a higher pain tolerance, and I agree with that. But they also, you might think, well, maybe they're less sensitive to it. No, actually, they're more sensitive at the low end, too. So yeah. they can detect it sooner and tolerate it higher, you know, better uh, than guys. So that's definitely going to be part of this. You know, like when you talk about delayed onset muscle soreness, to your point, Mike, you'd like to have some objective measures like performance, yeah. you know, leukocyte counts you know cytokines whatever in addition yeah so it's not just perception because you know women just um they do uh perceive pain differently so Mm -hmm. okay sorry for the rambling um mike i'll let you take it from here yeah so one of the first questions we always ask our guests is you know give us kind of your background and your your origin story like how did you end up getting to be a strength coach where you're at now all right, so I'll try to make this quick, but uh, I think, of course, I think we all have like our little stories of where we found interest in things, and um, I think it's all about like experiencing things you want to do, and then also what you don't want to do. And I kind of had both of those, so I think I fell basically in love or had a passion for the weight room when I was a senior in high school. I tore my ACL and kind of my first soccer game of the year. And I basically sat out from playing three sports that year. And I was in the training room and weight room every day trying to uh, get better. And I just fell in love with the process and um, just everything involved with the weight room and programming and talking about training and the body. And then I went to undergrad and I got a degree in nutrition I went and spent some time working two years after that under a dietitian, and I realized that I absolutely had wanted nothing to do with kind of going down that path. Um, <laughs> and it was Lonnie's laughing my- at you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm laughing because I tend to agree. <laughs> yeah, the common story, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly, and it was it was very much so like clinical setting, and I kind of questioned a lot of like what we what we learned um when I was in school which I still do this to this day and then um 
I kind of stayed up in New Hampshire where I was and thought about what I love to do. And I ended up applying to Springfield College transitioning program. And, you know, when I was there, like I, I very much so enjoyed being in school. Like I just loved the process of being a student and um, kind of the lifestyle. And when I was there, you know, I questioned whether I wanted to be a strength conditioning coach. Um, I really didn't find that I was kind of one of those people who lived in the weight room or didn't kind of questioned a lot of things like we were learning in terms of like my interest level in it. And then I met um, Dr. Pat Davison who kind of changed the way I thought about training and kind of gave me something that like kind of sparked a passion. Um, and then I continued at Springfield College getting an exercise physiology degree. And then I was like, oh, okay, I want to teach this. I want to be a professor one day. And then I got an experience doing that where I actually was able to teach some classes being a graduate assistant there. And I realized that I did not want to be in the academic setting or system, I should say. And then I kind of got into coaching, and then I realized like how much I truly enjoyed it. I started taking a lot of um, Postural Restoration Institute courses, and Pat Davison was probably one of my biggest mentors. And I've just realized that maybe I'm going to be just a different kind of strength conditioning coach than what I experienced at Springfield. And um, that's that's where I am today. Um, I absolutely love what I do and the athletes I work with. And uh, that's that's where I am right now. Very cool. A quick follow-up question. Uh, what was it that you learned from Pat, who's been on the show before? Shout out to Pat. <laughs> um, that was different. So for people listening in, what, what was that thing that kind of changed your mind about it? Yeah, so I think we're taught a lot of... Uh, I guess you would say like sacred cows in the field of, Hey, this is, this is how we squat. This is maybe our like progression and pro, uh, regressions for like this movement. But it's like, why? And uh, I think he, he answered a lot of the whys for me. Um, you know, if someone's not able to do this, well, why are they not able to do this? And kind of like digging deeper into things. And then also, I'm a, I'm a very, like, theoretical person. I think that kind of um, that draws a lot for me. Um, I like to kind of explore that. Um, so he he's a very theoretical person himself and talks about how, like, everything is connected, behavior, physiology, um, and kind of diving deeper into topics and connecting things at a, a much deeper level. Very cool. Awesome. Do you have any questions, Lonnie? In the... No, I mean, I agree. If people who are naturally intelligent and curious, they're going to want to know why, you know, a little bit about the mechanisms. And admittedly, Mike and I, we go off the deep end sometimes on the on the show about, oh, yeah. about that stuff. <laughs> um, and that's why it's good normally to have Phil to bring us back to the practical application. So I'm glad that you're with us today. <laughs> Phil, by the way, everybody, Phil is – He's in the hospital with his brother, so it's um it's a rough scenario. But he was, I think mm. he's been up all night. He actually sent me some photos. Oh boy! <laughs> so you know, my thoughts go out to Phil's family right now. But I'm I'm glad that Michelle, you can join us here today and bring us 
bring us back in, anchor us to you know the practical here. Not that Mike can't do that. I'm usually the one who's almost purely theoretical, but I appreciate that side of you, I guess. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and uh, no, I'm, so, I'm very sorry to hear that. And I think when we talk about research studies, I mean, um, Mike, Mike Nelson is just – and both of you, I can just like you know, give references and dive deep into research studies. And you know, when we think about the why, we have to look at how things are done in those research studies to actually generate a how and why of like – you know, if we're seeing EMG activity, well, how are those people performing that exercise? And that's explaining like a why. And maybe that's not necessarily like a good thing to get high EMG activity during a certain movement. So being able to really dive deep and question things, I think that that's kind of like the key of forward progression in the field. Right on. Right yeah, and I think that's what makes it interesting too. I mean, especially being you know where you're at. Like I think of Cal Dietz also is, you know, similar to you, very intelligent, knows a lot of the research, does things a little bit different. Um, but being a strength coach, especially when you have a little bit more leeway to coach athletes, kind of how you want, you get that actual data back. I mean, even if it's not a formal you know research study or things of that nature, over time you get the the direct experience with that. And it's also very short, right? So if we run a research study, man, that could be two, three, four years or longer from the time you start to the time it gets you know, completely published where other people can read it and you can talk about it. Or if you're a strength coach, you could literally, depending on how much you know, autonomy you have, read something and then you could apply it with your athletes right away. And you would know, oh, this was pretty good. Ooh, that was not looking so good. I'm going to you know, pull the plug on this. You can kind of, you know, intelligently iterate, I think, much faster. And that gap between when it was actually executed and getting all the data is also much shorter, which I think actually helps that process, too. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There's uh, getting evidence from research and scientific explanations. Um, but a lot of that has to do with collecting the objective measures. And I think experience right. in the weight room is very can be very subjective at some times and you know, maybe when it comes to athletic performance, not just um, maybe, for example, like in the powerlifting field of moving a specific weight from A to B, because uh, that's very objective. But in terms of like field sport athletes, maybe what's important can't really actually be objectively measured. Um, you know, do you reference like Tom Brady? He's not back squatting a specific weight and that's not what makes Tom Brady Tom Brady maybe it being able to move his hips one way and move his thorax another way is what makes him great and through his like throwing mechanics and how can we actually put research on top of that um, so I think being able to decipher that comes with experience as well yeah yeah and one last question and then we'll take a break is um, the athletes that you coach, and again, yours may be different than most athletes, but I always ask uh, strength and conditioning coaches this question. Um, would you say your strongest athletes in the weight room, are they the people that are generally starting or are they the people that are generally not starting? Yeah, I would say uh, the best people in the weight room are probably generally not the best athletes on the field. Yeah, and that's the answer I've heard from literally almost 
every strength and conditioning coach I've asked over the last 10 years. Yes, exactly. Which really makes your head spin. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it kind of you, – you hear that and you have to think about, well, two things. If you're in a team setting environment and those people aren't playing, maybe it's okay because it gives them a sense of purpose on the team. Sure. And I think you have to have that for each individual player. And then also at the same time, as a strength coach, like be able to self-reflect and say, you know, maybe like, of course, like what we do is important, but maybe it's not as important as we think because maybe we make it like very, very important of being able to move someone's squat up or move someone's bench up because it's important to us. Um, but that's not necessarily potentially making someone better on the field, which is like important to them. And that's, and that's two separate things. Yeah. And I also think of maybe it's incredibly nonlinear or biphasic that if you've got an athlete who can't back squat 95 pounds, then yeah, you probably need to work on that. Yes. But yes. if you're moving 315, 405 at a really good speed for reps, getting that that much better maybe you sacrifice speed maybe you made them worse at that point you yeah, know maybe absolutely. they just don't need any more of that quality oh, yeah absolutely so it's, it goes back to being able to assess and then address someone's needs and not like your needs you know yeah cool um we'll take a break and then we'll get into the topic of the day which is more kind of movement mastery for meatheads <laughs> Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like 
your weekly fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, Phil is away, so it's Mike and Lonnie, and we have uh, a guest, strength coach guest, that Mike is going to get really into a specific discussion about better movement, right, patterns and whatnot for meatheads. Uh, I wanted to offer two things very quickly. Uh, Iron Radio News, that I'd be remiss if I did not mention it. Uh, One, and this is very topical, and it just made me think about this because we have Michelle on, but we had a young female listener, and you know who you are. I'm not going to mention your name because I didn't ask, but um, soccer athlete, and she's so interested in some of the mechanisms and some of the things that we've been talking about and how you know the practical applications and science mix. She's going to start her own study, high school student. Like, I, I imagine that she's just going to be like, I want to recruit her for my university, you know? So natural, like uh, comparing the world kind of uh, outlook is something that a lot of, I think a lot of students lack. You know, I think we've lost that experimentalist mentality that was more uh-huh. pervasive, you know, in, in decades past. That's my curmudgeon voice there. But so very much in line. Like she may be, I can see her actually going on into kinesiology or exercise physiology, becoming a strength coach because, you know, at, at her young age, she's already starting to wonder about comparisons and setting up studies and how does strength conditioning affect her sport and just just very cool. So I wanted a little shout out there. And number two, I got repeated emails this week from people saying, what's up with the, the brew study and the coffee tasting project? Um, never fear, right? I'm back and forth with a couple of – I want to use a specific coffee tasting wheel, uh, and I'm pursuing that with a couple of the authors of that that work in food science departments um, elsewhere. I'm going to try to keep it vague. But – Never fear. We're actually we're we're getting these. Um, I, I have to be careful because I'm going to send out some NDA agreements so people you know are pro- keep it private what we're doing. We have the patent pending, but uh, and again documents are coming out. A little hold harmless form, a little privacy you know uh, non disclosure agreement, and then we're going to send you the envelopes with this specific method to brew coffee that could impact muscle mass and cognition. So. Hmm. Um, Stay tuned. Uh, we haven't forgotten. There's nothing slowed down behind the scenes. But again, I got two emails because we haven't been talking about it, and I just wanted to put that out there to the listeners who signed up. We had oh three dozen people, and we're even p- still putting people on a wait list because they're curious about this. The cool thing is the taste testing part of this, not the analytical part, uh, but the taste testing part, you know, it's human subjects waived because taste tests generally are. We can send out this this little method, if you will, to people all over the world who signed up and get some sort of feedback uh, that we're going to use for various uh, sciencey reasons. So, again, just a little bit of um, Iron Radio news. But having said that, I will shut it, and I'll let you guys get to the, the coolness of the topic. Cool. Awesome. Um, a very basic question, but if you know, a lot of our listeners are very performance-orientated, uh, 
Uh, why should they care about movement quality? And how will you even define movement quality? It's a very good question. Um, so I would define movement quality in terms of do you have access to all three planes of movement? Um, so that would be transverse plane, so rotation, frontal plane, and sagittal plane. And um, we tend to put ourselves in positions where we can kind of encourage or promote that type of movement or take away from that type of movement. So, for example, um, we'll go powerlifters. They're a very sagittal plane dominant um, sport. And repeatedly putting load in the same plane of movement potentially could take away or limit you in moving in the two other planes of movement, so frontal and transverse plane. Um, and those those people tend to be, or and they can also drive it from their sport, or they can actually have these structural kind of patterns before they get into their sport. Of they tend to be very like wide in like their rib cage. Um, they can you can promote like certain changes of how your pelvis and rib cage moves and is positioned. And I think this is important because if you can't move in other planes of motion, um, there's consequences involved in that. Um, and you may not feel them like right away, but they can, they can come like long term as well. So, and I think sports like that and maybe training that only locks you in certain, a certain plane of motion, um, can prevent you from doing what you love to do. Um, so I think movement quality and movement options um, can support you in whatever you want to do and reduce like the consequences from that. So do you think that would be kind of reducing the cost of, say, doing a back squat then? Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, exactly. Um you know, I'm not going to say like one particular exercise is negative or will come sure. at a cost. It's um, obviously like how you do it, um, how much volume you're doing it in, um, if that especially is in a um, negative, I wouldn't say negative way, but so for, for example, we'll say this. If you can't lay on a table and internally rotate a femur in an acetabulum, well, then maybe you should question your ability to do that when you squat. Because when you come up from a squat, you want to have the ability to internally rotate. So if I am squatting with my feet wide, my toes pointed out, and I'm pushing my knees out as I squat or descend, I'm driving like external rotation. And how I'm getting internal rotation on the way up is I'm just relatively internal, internally rotating from an externally rotated position. So I don't actually have internal rotation. Um, so when I teach athletes how to squat, um, I always say feet hip width apart, toes facing forward. And it's just kind of providing them options. So they're kind of they're increasing like that threshold where they actually have to like 
go into kind of a different strategy. So there's no, you know, best way to perform an exercise. I think there's just different strategies. Um, and there's different strategies for each sport, like a powerlifting. You're going to have feet wide, you know, they teach like drive knees out. You squat in a specific way because that's the way that you are able to perform that sport in which is moving a specific weight from A to B. Um, but I think being a power lifter comes with certain consequences of I've, I've worked with a few power lifters. They were having pelvic floor dysfunction. So there's probably an eccentric orientation of their pelvic floor. Um, and that comes with like a lot of symptoms. Um, I was dealing with a few f- female powerlifters who uh, were having trouble holding in their urine. Um, so I think I just gave them some low-level activities. Um, you know, doing aerobic work can also help in the health. And it's just giving them things that, you know, take these symptoms or consequences down while not taking like their sport away from them. Gotcha. On the pelvic floor one, I, I don't see that as much now as I used to. I don't know why. Just a couple of years ago, I, I saw it a, a fair amount and it was almost, um, I know Phil's talked a little bit about this too. Like I wouldn't say a badge of honor, but just a <laughs> thing that happened, especially in women. It's like, Oh, you yeah. whizzed yourself. Oh, yay. It's like, Oh, but to, and part of my brain goes, okay, I get it that you're probably extremely hyper-pressurizing, probably shoving your pelvic floor in a position it doesn't want to go, which is then going to have structural changes over time, and you're probably doing it as a compensation of lifting heavy. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, I applaud them for you know lifting heavier than the pink dumbbells and things of that nature. But the thing that was kind of scary to me was that a lot of women just perceived that it was normal. It was just a normal cost of doing the sport, which, ooh, that made me really kind of nervous. <laughs> um, I don't know if you could just talk a little bit about that. If Do you feel that is kind of a cost at some point, or is there something they could change with their lifting technique to still get a similar performance, but maybe without that side effect? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think maybe we don't think that this happens very often and we don't hear from things because I think these things are difficult to talk about for people. Oh, definitely. Yeah, they yeah. didn't tell me this on the first session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like no, no female is going to come up to you and just tell you that right away. Yeah. But there's also symptoms in males that I'm sure they're not going to admit um, about things occurring, um, maybe erectile dysfunction or things like that, which is something that you know, even if they're having, I'm sure they're really not going to desire or have any remote like ability to like talk about, especially to like their trainer or think it is related to what they're doing. Um, and then I also think like weightlifters or people who train, I think there's kind of this perception of like what normal is. Um, people think pain is normally associated with lifting, um, that if they lift heavy, that's associated with some sort of like aches and pains. There's, there's a difference between being sore and then being in some sort of like chronic pain. Um, and I think that's something that's difficult for people to get over, um, as well. Um, uh, for something I would do for that is maybe like an off day, 
or yeah, an off day or maybe after a training session or before, um, I would give them a different type of squat. So there's kind of like, quote unquote, like a human squat where I would maybe give them some assistance doing it. So unloaded or lightly loaded and feet hip width apart, toes facing forward and kind of cue them a certain way and maybe put something between their knees um, that may change the orientation of um, their pelvic position or their pelvic floor. Um, and then very go very slow. And I would try to give them some sort of sensory awareness because, you know, when you're lifting heavy weights, that's, that's straight motor. You don't really feel things working too much or you're not very aware of that as you shouldn't be. <laughs> so I think giving a people a sensory awareness, um, kind of experience, I think would, would assist them in what they love to do, um, and try to get bones in the right positions via getting certain muscles on or just reducing um, kind of the work that other muscles have to do, possibly. So you're kind of, from a pelvic floor standpoint, you're yeah. almost putting them in a little bit of a, a similar pattern. They're still squatting, but almost the inverse. Right? Instead of having their pelvis sort of tip forward or anterior rotate, you're probably going posterior rotate you're probably having them round their back more keep their legs in move their adductors kind of closer to each other almost like the inverse of a normal quote-unquote powerlifting squat that they're doing yeah exactly i would definitely assess them and see like yeah. you know where their pelvis is oriented just like kind of like what you're referring to and kind of in my mind okay like is their pelvic floor like eccentrically oriented or concentrically oriented? And that's going to change, you know, how, what muscles I kind of want to use. Am I going to have them squeeze a ball to get their adductors on, which actually widens like their infrapubal pubic angle? Is that what they need? Um, and that would be if, you know, they're in a certain position. Maybe I would have them do something else if I thought. Um, their pelvis was in another position, but I think if you go back to like powerlifters and people who tend to lift heavy weights, I think their pelvis tends to be like opened at the top and dumped forward. Um, so yes, just giving them the opposite of what they, um, what they already have. So giving them something that they don't have would kind of be like my mentality towards that. You know, if I can chime in, um, yeah. Thank you guys for giving practical examples like, I mean, acetabular articulations, internal rotation, you know, some of the stuff what you're talking the hell about. Did they Pel say? Yeah, pelvic floor. <laughs> can you, can, can, Michelle, can you define what exactly what you mean in lay terms by pelvic floor? Okay, so you have your diaphragm muscle, your thoracic diaphragm, which kind of sits underneath your rib cage and ascends and descends as you take an inhale and an exhale. You actually have a pelvic diaphragm, which kind of sits um, like a little like balloon in your uh, pelvis like bone structure, and that also has to be able to descend and ascend when you inhale and exhale. So come up and down to be able to manage volume and pressure every single time you take an inhale and exhale, and you can actually change. Um, if this like group of muscles can like descend and ascend 
based upon um, the orientation of your bone structures and you know your breathing mechanics or respiratory mechanics um, and the way you lift weights can actually change this um, orientation and we see you can have issues or symptoms based upon if my bones are in a specific position or my pelvis is in a specific position it can kind of make my pelvic floor which is like a group of muscles in your pelvic diaphragm um eccentrically oriented um or concentrically oriented um so that can cause symptoms down in that region and same thing for your thoracic diaphragm um how I lift weights can change how my axial skeleton or rib cage is positioned, and that can change my respiratory mechanics um, and my peripheral muscles. So, how my rib cage is kind of positioned and how those muscles are oriented or unable to do their jobs or able to do their jobs can affect, you know, how. I lift weights in my lower body and how, you know, my quads can do their job and my hamstrings can do their job based on um, those two groups of muscles. Those two, those two diaphragms can kind of direct other muscles to be able to, to work in certain positions. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that. You know, to me, uh, this really underscores understanding it's not just these huge – superficial prime movers that we're worried about, right? And so much of physical therapy to me, and I have some PT friends who'd smack me for saying this, but <laughs> it's, it's doing those – doing little things like you're talking about corrective things for the pelvic floor. They don't feel like training, you know, but it's almost like yeah. a self-care. Address those, you know, little assisters and, you know, peripheral-type things that aren't the big showy prime mover, uh, and you'll get better performance and health, right? But just by doing these little things, they almost feel like a chore because they're not they're not the fun side of training, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but those little things really matter, you know. Oh, it, I, so absolutely, I uh, I give like my the I'm uh my primary team is like the women's ice hockey team at Northeastern, and I go over like my standards and expectations. And one of my standards is you will know what it's like to physically work hard this year. And I say that, but I also divide it into, we always think that physical hard work is like lifting a heavy weight or or being explosive, like something that's going to have us be sore the next day, quote unquote. But actually, there's two different types. Well, I think there's three different types of hard work. But the second type is what I tell them is, okay, if I have you... Open up your left side. Can you actually inhale and feel air going into that side? Or if I have you do a slow tempoed squat, can you actually feel your hamstrings working during that squat? And that that is also physical hard work. It's just a different type of hard work. Mm-hmm. And I think you should be able to do both. Yeah, I like that. And I think a lot of times it's the kind of the definition of discipline. It's yeah. sometimes doing the thing that'll make you better that you probably don't want to do. Exactly. You know, a lot of athletes like heavy lifting. They like that type of stuff. That's probably why they're an athlete. But to do a lot of these sort of, you know, rehab, prehab, whatever word that they associate with it, they're like, oh, this is, this is, 
easy. But then when you have them do it in a specific way, they're like, wait a minute, well, this is hard. I don't feel like I get this big dopamine rush from doing it. <laughs> it's like I don't really want to do it, but I think that's what makes athletes who are very disciplined will do those types of things. You know, sometimes even if they don't even understand why they're doing it, they just kind of trust you and trust the process, and they you know tend to do better than too, of course. Yeah, they're, yeah. It, it's lacking immediate reward you know, to Correct. do some of those yes. things. Yeah, Exactly, and like, I see a huge difference between um, athletes, I mean – we're like top 10 in the country for like ice hockey. And I see a huge difference between players who play at a national level and players who don't. And those players who play at the national level or like the, the male players who are going into the NHL or preparing to go into the NHL, you see them do these things way more because they understand the importance and what it takes to kind of play at a different level. You know, if I can bring this back just quickly to uh, a lot of our listeners are bodybuilders, and that was my background, and bodybuilders are terrible at these things, right? I mean, talk about like sort of unilateral movements, isolation exercises, not thinking about all the planes of movement. I mean, don't get me wrong, a variety of movements. I think a lot of the same things that apply to nutrition – like variety, also yep. applied to the gym, a lot of these principles. Uh, and w- again, with the kind of better movement for meatheads topic, oh, so bad at those things. And I myself have been like that. Like I don't – I haven't spent a lot of time on corrective movements or postures or soft tissue work or any of these things. You know, I was always about the immediate reward of squatting more or bigger legs or – you know what I mean? And, and I think maybe – collegiate strength and conditioning is a little bit better because you do have someone or anybody, you know, when you have an educated strength coach, kind of like you were saying, assess the situation, you know, a look at what position your pelvis is in or your shoulders or whatever, and actually get a feel for, oh, you know, you really need to address some of these things because I can, I, I promise you, I, I'm living proof that when you don't, <laughs> they become, they become pretty entrenched. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's not taking something away from you. Um, like if you're a powerlifter and want to lift heavy or bodybuilders, like I want you to be able to do what you love to do. I just want you to be able to do it for longer and with less consequences. Yeah. And one tip I've used, Lonnie, with more physique athletes is that they tend to be – it's interesting because they're extremely disciplined on – on nutrition and doing things that I wish some of my other clients would be a little bit more disciplined on. Sometimes they're almost too disciplined. Um, And then explaining to them that, okay, you're really good at showing up to the gym. You're really good at doing the big movements and the isolation movements and nutrition is always on point. Now, I just need you to extend that habit into a little bit of these other things that look kind of weird and, you know, may not directly make your biceps bigger in a week. But will allow you to kind of do the things that you love to do and you know like most people i find that once they kind of are injured or in that gray area between something's bothering them but not bad enough to see a physical therapist that at that point they're the light bulb kind of goes on and they're like oh okay and then they're actually really compliant at that point once they understand you know why they're doing it and why they need it yeah Cool. And then as we wrap up, uh, Coach, what would be kind of the, for people listening in, what would be kind of the top three tips or even a couple tips that you would give them that maybe kind of, I don't want to say out of the box, but maybe things that they can 
you know, add into their training that would help with, you know, performance or especially with, you know, kind of reducing uh, the cost of the exercises that they're doing. Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, all right, we'll we'll number this. Um, I think Lonnie kind of hit on like your dopamine. And I, I think it's a very like motor driven thing. And, um, I would try to say for number one, get some sort of like sensory experience. Um, I know a few people do different things. Like you can do like float take or um, like low level activities that just kind of feel muscles working in different planes of motion. Um, And then I would say that leads into number two of do different types of motion. Um, (laughs) You know, if you lift heavy things in the sagittal plane 100% of the time, maybe do it, add in some transverse plane or frontal plane activity um, that will kind of help you in moving a little bit better. And then I would say third, I would say I think you would be surprised, and I'm sure you've definitely talked about the benefits of aerobic exercise, but I yeah. think that can be a huge, huge health component. And I think people would be surprised that just going for like how a long walk or a low intensity, long duration like bike will help them handle more volume and um, feel better. Um, so I think those are probably thing three things that I would say. It's great advice. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and where can people learn more about you? Oh, awesome. Um, so I have a website. It's called michellebowen-training.com, where I try to post a lot of articles. Um, I have a resource map that kind of lays out like books in different categories. I have an exercise database. Um, and then I post a lot of stuff on Instagram, if you're interested, definitely in thinking about moving in different planes of motion. <laughs> I try to explain things as much as possible. Um, on my Instagram name is mboland18. Uh, and then um, you can also find me on Facebook too. And I think you have a product that kind of details with videos, a lot of the different kind of movements that you use with clients and athletes and things that we've talked about today, correct? Yeah, exactly. So, You know, my number one thing is performance. That's what I am driven with. And, but I also try to include because I know the benefits of health. And so I created an exercise database, which with over 190 exercises and there's explanations and audio cueing. Um, and you can find that on my website. And I kind of, that gives you kind of a sneak peek into like my training model and then some variation that you might um, not been exposed to, um, hopefully. Um, so you can check that out as well. You know, I know we're out of time, but I am so impressed that you're using the web media, Instagram, all this stuff for like, (laughs) for your, for like educational purposes instead of like selfies. (laughs) That's so common. I think in strength and muscle sports is look at my abs, look at this, look at that. And here you're like using these to demonstrate you know planes of motion and things like that i love it I yeah, love yeah. It. you won't see any uh pictures with uh my shirt off or anything like <laughs> that and i think i think it's the market is definitely saturated with that and it's 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 i see a lot of my friends kind of get upset with those things and i say okay well what are you doing like what's your solution for that and yeah. it's like 
yeah, let's put some free content, like explain like what we do and describe it in detail and um, maybe allow people to kind of pick up on that stuff and apply it in their own context. So, yeah, yeah definitely it's, it's kind of my way of trying to provide some sort of solution. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jay Doc. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.